At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world, from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Over the last year, alongside general partner Vijay Pandey, We've talked to some of the leading minds in AI and biology. Jakob Uskarait, Daphne Kohler, Aviv Regev, Andrew Ng, and more. Each of those conversations went deep in their own ways, but together they formed an oral history of the last few decades of biology and AI, directly from the people who were building the infrastructure. Hello and welcome to Raising Health, a show for and about the builders who are leading the companies behind the bio and health innovations. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is our best stories in AI from 2023. We'll be sure to link each of the standalone episodes in the show notes. Let's get started by taking it back to the late 1990s, when Daphne Kohler started as faculty at Stanford. Daphne was working on expert systems, which were among the earliest successful forms of AI. I was, I think, arguably the first machine learning hire into Stanford's computer science department. Uh, it was very much a old-fashioned AI at, uh, institution at the time that I got there with some of the truly great leaders in AI, like, you know, John Carsey and Ed Feigenbaum, who really had built the field of AI in its infancy, if you will, but they hadn't really adopted the more numerical form of AI that uh, that I've been working on, which I would say when people ask me, how did you become an AI person? My response is I didn't actually become an AI person. AI became what I was doing. Yes. In the early days, people did not admit numerical methods as being part of AI. And so I was actually kind of on the fringes or arguably beyond the fringes. And then the field grew to encompass what we were doing and ultimately grew to have that as a center of mass. We're talking, this is 1997-ish? When I came back to Stanford as faculty, it was 1995. 1995, okay. And, you know, when you say that AI was sort of old school and machine learning was new, it's kind of mind-blowing because we kind of think about machine learning as as being such a foundational area of how we think about things. But, like, AI before then, what was AI before then? It was expert systems. It was... It was expert systems. It was logical theorem proving. There was an entire panel at the biggest AI conference. The vast majority of the panel, with the exception of Judah Pearl, who I hold to be one of the truly great leaders in bringing AI into this new world, were unanimous in saying that uh, AI does not use numbers because people don't use numbers in how they think about the world. Now, I don't know how we could possibly know what happens in the internal of our brain and with the modern day neural networks, I would say that there is more and more 
I would say, substantiation for the fact that, at least in some ways, our brain does use numerical calculations, even if we are not conscious of them. But at the time, it was uh, almost like a, a, a given fact that in order to mimic the way in which people think, you couldn't use numbers. Well, and it's really interesting because even just nomenclature, artificial intelligence uh, is this storied space. And this almost has to take a new name of machine learning. It's something different. And at the time, machine learning is what it's it probably still a little before probabilistic graphical networks and so on. It's S SVMs or... It's they they these emerge in parallel, like whatever random forest and support vector machines were up emerging in parallel to probabilistic graphical models. Yeah, but I would say even today, people often treat them as synonymous. In fact, there's often this like one word which is deep learning, machine learning AI, as if they're all synonymous with each other and they are not. Um, they're actually quite different, at least yeah. in my eyes. But well, well, uh, yes. can you can you break it apart? Uh, what differences do you see between them? Artificial intelligence is a quest to build machines to behave that behave in ways that are similar to the intelligence that we see in a human. I would say that machine learning is a methodology for taking large amounts of data and learning from that how to achieve good performance in certain tasks. It is the case that most of artificial intelligence tasks today are solved better via machine learning than via other approaches, but that doesn't mean that's a universal fact. Maybe more to the point, there is a whole bunch of stuff that machine learning can do that a person will never be yes. able to do, including most of what I currently do in biology is beyond what a person could uh, could envision doing. So to my mind, they are two circles in an intersecting Venn diagram with a very large overlap, but they are not synonymous. As he told us, Vijay was also getting involved in his first AI projects around this time. In 2000, he launched the Folding at Home Distributed Computing Project. The key foundation for this is um, me um, launching and running the Folding at Home Distributed Computing Project, which we launched in 2000. A lot of people know about Folding at Home as being this massive supercomputer. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of the technologies that we sort of see today, uh, we really pioneered. So running large-scale distributed calculations that you might do in the cloud now, we were doing then. Um, actually, GPUs, we were some of the first to code on GPUs even before actually languages like CUDA existed. Uh, Folding Home was running on GPUs. So GPUs were obviously a trend that we saw would be hugely important. The other area that I think we're especially known, I'm especially known for, is combining the AI side with the physical simulation. And so the combination of data and physics can help actually solve some gaps because um, up until recently, you typically would need a ton of data on the AI side for training and physics can, can balance that out. To some degree, that's still true. And so being able to sort of meet in the middle or really to have the best of both worlds, I think could be the solution for many areas such as in drug design. But as the models became bigger and more sophisticated, the challenge then as now was about getting more data and the right data to train the models. And the key thing is that there was some data that you could use for training and actually doing things. I mean, what was your experience for like those early days of machine learning? So, you know, that's very interesting. And in some ways, it's a also an answer to a question that I'm sure you'll come to later, which is how did I get into biology? Yes. yes. Is that the data set that were available to machine learning people at the time were rather, um, in many cases, boring and lame. So the most <laughs> Like CIFAR um, or? Yeah. CIFAR was actually later and better. The okay. first ones were like that. 20 news groups, which is like literally a few dozen articles from each of 20 news groups that you had to classify into which news group. Was it about computers or was it about pets? And it was just like 
I can't bring myself to care. That at the time, and this was already the late '90s, the data sets that were available or emerging in biology were more interesting. So, for example, the first microarray data sets were coming out, and all yes. of a sudden, you had gene expression for twenty thousand genes across. Oh my goodness, a hundred samples, which of course today is ridiculous, but at the time that was large-ish. Huge. And so you could actually start doing things like asking which gene talks to which other gene and what does that tell me about the cellular networks? And so it was more interesting. Technically, it was also more interesting in terms of it actually gave you novel insights, which the 20 news groups couldn't really. And so it was, and then ultimately it also became more aspirational because you were actually discovering insights about biological systems that might eventually give rise to, you know, something that could help people. And, you know, I started to work on some cancer data sets, not just the early data sets on yeast. And so it was also more aspirational from a value creation perspective. Well, yeah. And, and so you, you very much anticipated the question I was going to ask. It sounds like you were driven to biology because that was a data rich space, but also you spoke about wanting to do things that have meaning. And it was a combination of the two, it seems like. I think that's true, but the weight of those changed over time. So yeah. I would say initially, a lot of that was just about, oh, this is just cooler. There's more data to be had. I can think about more interesting technical questions. And then as we started to extract more and more insights, it became clear that, wow, we were actually learning like meaningful things about cancer. And that is really valuable potentially. And so then I began to place more and more weight on that other piece of what was going on. And so ultimately ended up with a bifurcated lab at Stanford, which uh, in which half of my lab continued to do core machine learning applied to computer vision and robotics and various, and just even core machine learning methods development published at the traditional machine learning venues. And half my lab did biology published in, you know, cell and science and nature genetics. And what was interesting is that my computer science colleagues didn't even by and large realize that I did biology. <laughs> my biology colleagues had no idea I was in a computer science department. Jakob started at Google Translate in its earliest days when people thought of it as a joke. Before Brain got started uh, in, in Translate, it was much more driven by products that truly made a difference than I believe Bell Labs was. Yeah. And we had a good number of, of Bell Labs alumni, of course, uh, among us, but it was much more motivated by direct applicability. And, and so it was, which, which to me was actually really amazing to, to see it, to you know, witness how machine translation turned from what was good for laughs at a party, quite uh -huh. literally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they asked you, where do you work? And they said, Google. And then they said, what do you do there? And they were impressed at first. And then you said, oh, I work on Google Translate, and then they laughed and asked, will this ever work? I don't think so. But that joke quickly became a model of how to organize language data. Well, let's just give an example for people who aren't familiar. Like, so for bag of words, if I said, uh, show me all the restaurants nearby except for Italian, uh, it'll show right. you all the Italian restaurants, right? Exactly. In, in fact, I think what you said can probably be re reordered into show me all Italian restaurants except nearby. Yeah. And so, right, it's just a soup of words and you can yes, reorder yes. it in something that definitely means something different. Yes. And then you approximate getting at the structure and getting at, you know, the more global phenomena by putting in, you know, bigrams, so basically groups of two consecutive words and things like that. But, but it's clear that, uh, you know, certainly in languages like, like German, where you can basically, you know, put the verb into the very end of a sentence, no matter what. And it changes what, the whole meaning, right? It changes, it changes all meaning, exactly. No yes. matter what the size of your 
engrams are or your, your little word groups, you will ultimately not succeed. And it became clear to us that there has to be a different way that doesn't require the RNN's recurrence in length or recurrence in sequence of say words or pixels for that matter, but that actually processes inputs and outputs in a more parallel way. Like Daphne, Jakob found himself struggling with and being shaped by data. At the time in Translate, actually, the most interesting distinguishing feature was that we really believed in the absolute power of data at the end of the day. So we were trying not to make more complicated, more sophisticated algorithms, but instead actually simplify and scale them as much as possible and then uh, enable them to really train on more and more data. But we just hit a ceiling there. The simplifications you had to actually uh, make in order to scale them to what was at the time Google scale, that was really our, our aim. But then, and that was kind of one of these pendulum uh, movements swinging, swinging back out of academia, out of academia, a bunch of folks with a bunch of GPUs, deep learning came back in a certain sense with a vengeance. And then and suddenly the environment adapted because it was unclear what the direct path would be at scale into production. Uh, and so the entire environment shifted from being more application and product oriented into something that at least felt for quite a few years, much more academic. It's still different than academic labs because we could afford way more GPUs, but much more in line in a certain sense with this idea of, you know, driven by publications, driven by yeah leaps rather than steps, I would say, turned into a more a very, very productive and really amazing, but much more open-ended. As he worked with language data, he realized that there are parallels to biology. Even with our limited understanding of the underlying principles of biology, the potential of AI stands out. The idea is not to wholly grasp the entirety of a subject, but to harness its capabilities. Just as we can't pinpoint a single theory of language, perhaps we don't need to see inside the black box of biology to make progress. For quite a while now, biology struck me as such a problem where it doesn't seem inconceivable that there are bounds to how far we can go in terms of, say, drug development and drug design with you know, traditional biology as the backbone of, of how we go about designing and, or, or discovering methods to design the drugs of the future. And it seems that deep learning in particular at scale is for a bunch of reasons, potentially a really apt tool here. And, and one of those reasons actually is, is something that is often not necessarily built as, as an advantage, which is the fact that it's this big black box that you can just throw at something. And it's yeah. not true that you can just throw it at something. You do have to know how to throw it. And, and it's not exactly black either. We can argue it about is, that later. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But at the end of the day, and again, coming back to maybe the analogy to language, we've never managed to fully, in that sense, understand and conceptualize language to the extent that you could claim, oh, I will now go and tell you this theory behind language. And then afterwards, you will be able to implement an algorithm that, in quotes, understands it. We've never yeah. gotten to that point. At some, at, instead, we had to abort and go take a step back and, in my opinion, to some extent admit to ourselves that that might not have been uh, the most pragmatic approach and that instead we should try approaches that don't require that level of conceptual understanding. And I think the same might be true for parts of biology. Throughout the last few decades, these builders had to weather multiple boom and bust cycles in AI, moments of extreme hype and moments of AI winter. And you know what? I have lived through multiple AI winters as part of my Stanford career. I lived through a phase in the early 90s 
where you couldn't say you were doing AI because um, you had to say you were doing quote cognitive computing because doing AI was like a <laughs> was like a sort of a little bit unsavory and not you know not the kind of thing that truly intellectual people did and. Today, I think that we are in a world where the capabilities are enormous, but still, if your promises are even more hyperbolic than what the technology can support, you're still doing damage and discrediting the yes. field and risking that kind of backlash in the long run. Well, it sounds like you're very much taking the long view of this, that this is something that could be transformational to the entire space, and uh, but these transformations don't happen overnight. They don't, and you have to ask the right questions work closely with domain experts who understand where the big value creation can lie and do really solid, robust science that doesn't crumble as soon as you start poking at it. Andrew Ng, who co-founded Google Brain, sees parallels between those extreme cycles and current warnings that AI could destroy the world, as he explains. Even about 10 years ago, when deep learning started to work really well, there were startups that were using AGI hype mm-hmm. to successfully raise their valuation. So there are the crafty companies that are making arguments like, my technology is so dangerous, I might accidentally <laughs> destroy the world. So let's talk about how much my company is worth. I really did not find that argument tasteful, but unfortunately, it was effective. Vijay also experienced AI winter several times over the course of his career. I was getting excited about AI pretty early, especially just neural nets very early. In the late 80s, early 90s, while I was an undergrad at Princeton, there was a lot of excitement about neural nets. Actually, my books are in the Mental Park office, and so I've got a couple of books in there on neural computing. And there was a excitement from the bio side uh, to understand how the brain works and excitement from the practical side of, oh, you could do something with these neural nets. And with all that excitement for what it could do and what it meant and trying to understand it, it kind of seemed to fizzle. Like it could do some things, but it was like, you looked at it, you never thought of this as like, okay, this is a brain or this is like real intelligence. The neural nets could do a few simple things, uh, but then also there's all these critiques of the things it couldn't do, like certain nonlinear things like XOR as being the, the canonical example uh, that it couldn't do. And so actually it was a feeling like this is cool uh, and fun, but this can't be how the brain works. And this is kind of a dead end. And like, I think a lot of us put it down then, and I put it down for a while and not back until 2012, 2013, when deep learning started appearing. And I remember the first time I was talking about deep learning with my group at Stanford and there, you know, it's basically you start stacking the neural nets and that's how you get nonlinearity. And at first that sounded like That didn't necessarily sound like a genius thing to do. It sounded like just kind of like, let's just throw more at it. But then we started seeing more and more successful results. And then we started understanding why they're working. And then it started feeling like, oh, actually, this is a really good idea. But despite these periods of AI winter, the technology continues to develop. And in 2012, when Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier discovered CRISPR as a tool to point to edit genomes, Programmable biology took a massive leap forward. Aviv Regev experienced it happen. For people like me, and definitely for me personally, probably the two years of 2011 and 2012 were some of the absolutely best moment. And we're now starting to really like get the full benefit of it. But it's, it's an exhilarating ride when, when stuff happens like that, especially if you get to 
actually contribute to it. I would actually enumerate three major things. The first one was the ability to perturb cells. I mean, I care about how cells operate individually and in organisms, in tissues and organs and beyond. I cared about that since I was this, you know, kid undergraduate and just felt there was a gap there. So I still care about it now. The ability to perturb the system is absolutely essential. It's not that it wasn't possible before CRISPR. That would be absolutely wrong to say. But it all of a sudden became precise and scaled at a new scale. The second one was the ability to characterize cells genomically at the individual cell level, first in dissociated cells and then spatially. But in those years, it was really in the level of single cells. That is true. It's not that biologists were not characterizing individual cells before. They've actually been doing it for many decades, more than 100 years in semi-systematic way. But they didn't have the ability to look at something that was comprehensive. And they didn't have the ability to do it at sufficient scale. So again, the scale and the richness, high resolution, massive scale, is something that is extremely important to answer difficult questions. And the depth of the information too, right? Like RNA-seq is, is like transcriptomics tells you so much. So much. Before you had to, you had to choose breadth or depth. You could look at a lot of cells, but you would be able to ask about one variable or two variables. And it was bespoke and you had to build a system and techniques and so on every time you wanted to ask a question. Or you could look at one cell and get a, a one cell or one sample and get rich information, but you might not be able to look at individual cells. You would have to look at them in the bulk. That was kind of the trade-off. And people lived with the trade-off because that's what they could do. All of a sudden, you could have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. And these two things become particularly material when I pull my third thing that happened, and that's deep learning. Yes. Ah. So for those of us who've been in machine learning before deep learning and after deep learning, we actually know it's different. It feels very different, but its impact has not just been due to an algorithmic advance, although, you know, absolutely also due to an algorithmic advance, but it was a trifecta. There's algorithms, there's data, and there's compute. And that trifecta was happening in other domains, right? They had algorithms and they had compute, but they also had data. There was enough data for vision problems, enough data for text problems, enough data for speech problems. In the beginning, when deep learning was arriving on the scene, 2012 or so, there wasn't enough data for biological problems. Like when I put that hat on, there wasn't really. Mm. But the ability to measure at that scale, which single cell genomics gave us, like again and again and again and again. And on top of that, to do causal interventions, which is what CRISPR allows us to do, makes it like just perfection. Yeah. Machine learning. And on top of that, when you can do things at scale and you have the tools, you can iterate. And iteration is really the, the, the heart of the game. So it takes, it takes years for all of these things to fully materialize. And what was really fun for me is that I got to say, yeah, that's what I wanted all along. Now I'm just going to go and do it. You can actually build now a foundational model in biology. In cell biology, you can. That is thanks to the efforts of initiatives like the Human Cell Atlas that said, yeah, there's a lot of them, but we're not afraid. We're going to get a really good sense of what cells are there. And we would make it into something we used to call it like a periodic table of the cell, like a nickname, so that it wouldn't just be that we would be able to say, here are all the things we measured, here's the catalog. We would be able to predict things that we haven't seen. And foundational models, that's what they let you do. They don't just define the realm of what you've done. But they actually let you say within what you've done and ideally out of distribution, this is what I think should be there. Here are the holes that I can fill for you, not just by measuring everything yourself. So that's to me like the pinnacle. 
Just a few years later, in 2017, Jakob was the co-author of the paper Attention is All You Need, which introduced the transformer model. A transformer model is a neural network model that tracks sequential relationships and is able to learn context, which is particularly important in language, but also other areas, including audio, computer vision, and of course, biology. A natural place to think about is when you and the team published uh, Attention's All You Need. And, you know, that's been such a seminal paper for uh, so much of generative AI since uh, that's when the transformer algorithm uh, was first laid out. And so two years prior to, to publishing that paper, we realized that what was then state of the art in uh, um, problems like, or for problems like machine translation, uh, or was emerging as state of the art, namely LSTM or RNN-based uh, to seek overall as a, as a training paradigm and as a, as a setup, but also as a network architecture, had incredible issues, even on the most modern at the time GPUs, when it came to scaling in terms of data. So for example, the very first called neural machine translation system that Google launched, GNMT, um, was actually, to my knowledge, never really trained on all training data that we had available, that we had previously mined for the phrase-based statistical systems. And, and that was really because the algorithms just didn't scale well in terms of uh, the amount of data. And so long story short, we actually were looking at the time, not at machine translation, but at problems where internally at Google, we had even larger amounts of training data available. So these were problems that came out of search. Uh, where, you know, basically you have another three, four orders of magnitude, you know, there's now, now not billions of words anymore, but trillions easily. And wow. suddenly we had this, we encountered this pattern where simple feed forward networks, even though they made ridiculous simplifying assumptions, such as, you know, it's just a bag of words or it's just yeah. a bag of bigrams and you, you kind of average them and you send them through a big, uh, MLLP, they actually outperformed RNNs and LSTMs at least when trained on more data and they were n times faster, easily 10, 20 times faster to train. And so you could train them on way more data in some cases, a hundred times faster to train. And so we kept consistently actually ending up with models that were simpler and that couldn't express or capture certain phenomena that we know are definitely common in language. And yet, you know, bottom line, they were cheaper to train and performed better. As we enter the most recent AI hype cycle, this one spurred on by the release to the public of transformer language models like ChatGPT, it's difficult to separate hype from genuine progress toward what we've long seen as a new industrial revolution, a new parallel to when the internet became integrated into everyday life. But there are signs that the AI adoption curve is following previous adoption curves, especially as AI computing power and data become more widely available and therefore less of a barrier to entry. What is AI? varies uh, almost from cycle to cycle because like if you go back to the 50s and 60s uh like marvin minsky or eliza or whatever that's just like cute now or a toy or it's an expert system with a ton of if then else's where you can't imagine that's the way any of us think and i think a lot of us early on uh, a lot of us had friends that were immigrants to this country and they, they learned tv uh, they learned english by watching tv you know they learn things just by seeing the world come through them. And I think all of us had the feeling that if you could create a device that can learn, then you don't have to give it the rules. It infers the rules. And and that's what I think got us excited about machine learning. But the reason why machine learning was called machine learning and not AI in some part was to meant to distinguish it from all that other stuff. So each of these winters sort of 
is describing a different type of technology. And even like AI is a bundle term that describes all one of them. And each one of them kind of got to a point where it fizzled out towards maybe some AGI-like goal. What could happen here is that LLMs take us to a certain point, but not to AGI. And But I think what's different now is that just where we are now is already so interesting that if it never went any further, there's no winter. There's not going to be an internet winter, you know, or a mobile winter. It's already so powerful that we'll just keep on going, just even taking advantage of what we have now. And so that's what's different about now. Vijay and Andrew talked about this as well. Anything that you would share or anything counterintuitive you think that makes building sort of this generation of startups with AI different than what people did with SaaS or people did with mobile or people did in early internet and so on? I think there's strong analogies to all of these early waves of um, platform innovation, where with SaaS those are, or mobile, there were new platforms created by you know the phone companies or the cloud players that enable a lot of applications to be built. Even though today, a lot of the buzz and excitement is on the infrastructure layer, technology layer, uh, the people that sell these fantastic API services. Some to earlier ways of platform transformation, the only way for the technology layer to be successful is if the application layer is even more successful so it can generate enough revenue to pay you know, these infrastructure builders. I see the infrastructure layer as hyper-competitive. Look at all the startups chasing OpenAI. Yep. So my team plays at the infrastructure layer only occasionally and carefully when we think we have a technology advantage. Because I think with that tech advantage, it earns you a chance at being one of the mega winners. But then I end up spending even more of my time at the application layer and exploring the application of AI to many verticals. And for different applications, I find um, sometimes you find an application sector and we go, huh, large market opportunity, but not that many competitors. And the media just doesn't cover that much the different applications. But I think there's a lot of opportunities there as well. And being the biohealth team, we're particularly excited about applications that can transform biology and healthcare. Aviv shared her perspective on building models that take into account both the individual cell level and are generalizable to a broader patient population. Well, and let me ask you one devil's advocate question. So it's very, very appealing intellectually to say we want to understand the cell, and then there's so much to learn. Do you feel that uh, there's enough disease biology that's recapitulated by cellular phenotypes and cellular biology? Or do we have to go like higher and higher scale? At what point is it enough scale? So first of all, it really depends on the disease. Sure. In biology, the answer is always, it really depends. What's yeah. the context? What's the disease? And so on. I think cells are useful on their own. But I actually think when you talk about cells, you don't talk about them on their own. You talk about them next to the other cells in the tissue, in the organ, in the patient. So it's not that you're looking just at that level of organization, but it is the basic unit of life. So you're also not ignoring that level of organization. Second, especially for machine learning folks, working at multiple scales through which have are nominally very different from each other is in with substantial nonlinear transformations. That's the heart of biology, and that's what has been extraordinarily painful in biology in the past. So, for example, you can look at molecules, then you can look at cells, then you can look at tissues, then you can look at um, organs, then you have the whole body, and then you have physiological phenotypes that are multiple and you have ecosystems. And, yeah. When you are in the cell, you can look at it through its molecular lens, you can look at its shape and morphology. So now you have multiple views of the same entity, but in the end, there's only one patient. That's what I always say. What's amazing now, when quantity becomes quality, 
is that with algorithms, you can actually relate these things pretty impressively more and more today. Yeah. Well, and that that takes us finally to sort of, that probably is the ultimate realization of your mission, right? That understanding not just how cells work or human cells work, but like how my cells work, you know, as a patient or your cells work as a patient and taking care of our specific issues. True, but you would very much want to do it in the context of a foundational model that generalizes. Because if I think about the economics of medicine and about caring for patients and about caring for patients all over the world in areas that have radically different resources, then the more we understand the generalizations, the better off we are. We want to be personalized and general at the same time. That's one of these very good tensions to address. Daphne talked about how her company, Incitro, is working to connect causal links between human genetics and clinical outcomes using AI. People don't know everything about biology. I would say it's people know very little about biology relative to the complexity of what biology is. It's a very complex, multifaceted discipline. And, and, you know, we're only at the very beginning of figuring it out. What we try and do is to bring together data that allows us to uncover or detect patterns that have cause-effect relationships and then use machine learning to kind of make connections between them. So in the human clinical side, we actually have, in principle, 8 billion experiments of nature where we have a cause-effect relationship between human genetic profile and a clinical outcome. Each of us is an experiment of nature. And that gives us the opportunity to identify some of those cause-effect relationships. Now, there is a clear demonstration at this point across several different uh, meta-analyses that have happened that targets or clinical hypotheses that have support in human genetics are twice as likely to succeed in the clinic as ones that do not. And so that supports this notion of using experiments of nature in order to identify new clinical hypotheses. What we're bringing to the mix that is differentiated is the ability to create a much finer-grained definition of what an each of these experiments of nature is, which is not look at the very long range and distal relationship between here's a gene and then there's, you know, do you or do you not get a disease, you know, 70 years in the future, but really map the underlying biological state by collecting lots and lots of high content data about the human biology, whether it's imaging data or blood biomarkers and so on, and say, okay, this target or this modulation of this gene achieves a particular effect on human biology, which we can then connect the dots towards a downstream clinical outcome. But that intermediate state um, is much better powered. It's much higher content. It's a lot less biased by human preconceptions of how we define disease typically incorrectly. Um, And so that gives us the ability to connect that, to, to build that causal link And then we juxtapose that with a different type of data that that we generate in our own internal wet labs where we have the ability to interrogate that genotype, phenotype, or cause-effect relationships similarly with high-content readouts at the cellular level. And the benefit of that being that we can now do interventional experiments um, where we can choose our interventions as opposed to having the experiments of nature that are happen by chance. And so we can say, well, what happens if we actually perturb this gene? Then you could say, well, it happens at the cellular level. What does it tell you about what happens in the human? And that's where machine learning comes in, is in kind of building that bridge between what we see at the cellular level in high content phenotypes, what we see at the clinical outcome level on the human side. Because you've got data for both, right? You've yeah, got data for both. 
And we yeah. try and link those. And I think that is, frankly, when we talk, for example, to investors and others, they tell us that that is the thing that makes us most distinct in this ecosystem. There are companies that do a lot of interesting cellular experiments with functional genomics. Not often, but sometimes with very high quality, high content data. There's a small handful of those. There are a small number of companies that look at human clinical data and try and discern patterns. They're mostly driven by predefined clinical hypotheses that a clinician has set the direction for. There's very few, if any, companies that actually try and kind of create that entire arc that goes from the cellular experiments through to the human clinical outcome. As Vijay told us, it's possible to distinguish hype from real progress by looking to the builders and the problems they're working on. The people who build things, they're the ones who understand real progress because they have problems to solve. And they usually aren't the ones talking about things, so they're not the ones dealing with hype or not. And so I always just look to the people who are building. When I was a builder, I would just look to see what you know the te- my team could do with their own hands. I look at now my portfolio companies and see what they can build. And, and I think that's how you separate it. And if it's solving a real problem, then obviously it's not hype. The challenge comes when you talk about like, where are we going to be in five years or where are we going to be in 10 years? And that inevitably is such a hard thing to predict that it will someone will be either pessimistic or optimistic. But in terms of where we are today, I think you just look at the builders. And the key thing is like it's AI, especially LLMs and other types of AI are being integrated in to so many of our life sciences, healthcare companies, probably already like 50% of them started with it. And now it feels like the other 50% are, are integrating it in uh, because now is a good time. That does not seem like hype. That seems like a real problem that can be solved. After decades of hard work and in spite of the hype, our expert builders believe that this AI cycle might represent a sea change. As Jakob told Vijay, we're in inflection point territory. Where do you think AI is right now for those harder problems? For drug designer, healthcare and so on, like where is it now? What, What has to be done? When will it get there? It's always very dangerous to make predictions about the future. But I would be very surprised if within the next three years, we wouldn't actually start to see an inclination point happening uh, when it comes to the real world effects of uh, machine learning, large scale deep learning in, in drug development, drug design. Where exactly they'll be first, I believe that a lot of them will happen around RNA therapeutics and vaccines, but that will certainly not be the only area affected by this. But I I definitely think we're headed into the inflection point territory. And as Vijay told us, when it comes to bio and health, inflection point territory can mean real lives saved. You know, healthcare is like almost a quarter of GDP and obviously critically uh, meaningful to us as individuals. This is not just our health, but our spouse's health or our our parents' health or our kids' health. It's hard to imagine something more important uh, than uh, your family member's health versus like the next iPhone or something like that. So for tech to be able to raise up this space, a space where there's a huge need for improved quality and a huge need for lower cost at a time when we're having doctor shortages and nursing shortages, it's such a sort of crisis moment where this technology is coming at right the right time. That's the part that I'm super excited about. And like what we will be able to do, the lives we'll literally be able to save, the impact we're going to have is enormous because the need is enormous and the technology is coming right at the right time. Thank you for joining Raising Health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by Olivia Webb and Chris Tatiosian and edited by Phil Hegseth. 
If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email raisinghealth at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Raising Health, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures.